The Akkad and Koka Report, episode number 112. Welcome to the Akkad and Koka Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Akkad and Coco Report. Today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Paul Offit here. Dr. Offit Dr. is uh, definitely one of our uh, more academically decorated uh, guests who, who, who's come on here. He's very, very well known. Um, he's director of the Vaccine Education Center and professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's uh, the Maurice Hillman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's internationally recognized as an expert in the fields of virology and immunology. Um, uh, and, and his list of plaudits goes go on and on. He's also co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech, uh, recommended for universal use in infants. Um, and he's received a number of awards awards for, for that work. He's also, um, should I say a scourge? A scourge of the anti-vax uh, community. And uh, he's, uh, he's well known in the anti-vax uh, uh, community for uh, his, his battles, his battles uh, with them. Um, Doctor, you know, Doctor Offit is here um, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, where he's no doubt isolated in some uh, some place in, in his house in Philadelphia, and uh, so we're very gracious for him to give us some of his time to to teach us a little bit about uh, about uh, about COVID nineteen, the coronavirus, and and what his thoughts are on the uh, the response and what what we uh, should be perhaps what we should be doing, what we could be doing different. Um, so, Dr. Offit, tell me what this. When did you have you been following this? You know, being a virologist, have you been following this for a while now? Ever since you know the China report started coming out. Well, I mean, I think you know, infectious disease folks have been following this ever since the first novel coronavirus erupted with SARS and then MERS and now this. So, sure, I mean, these viruses that that are that have not been seen by anyone in the population, therefore have the capacity to spread across the world and cause a pandemic. Sure, I've been following that. What and was there a specific point that that made you realize in this particular case that this was different than SARS and MERS? Yeah, I mean, so SARS was the first, and that caused about eight thousand cases, eight hundred deaths. MERS was next at twenty five hundred cases, a thousand deaths. But those what, people that were infected with SARS and MERS were sick, and so it was really much easier to kind of put a moat around them, if you will, quarantine them, and then prevent spread. That's not this virus. I mean, this virus is spread much more easily. There's asymptomatic shedding. There's a mildly symptomatic shedding. And so it's hard to know who's infected and who's not. Um, and then you saw what happened in China, where, um, you know, 3,000 or 3,300 people died. And so, you, you know, Wuhan was the epicenter of that outbreak. They were building hospitals. You knew something bad was happening. The question was only going to be how bad. Wow. Oh. And were your thoughts that were, were, your, were your thoughts that uh, it was something that would be contained there, or, or did you did you kind of think you know I think I think we kind of came on our radar here in that December January timeframe, uh, January twenty third I, I think is when Wuhan locked down. Um, is that when you kind of did you think that this would spread in a way uh, kind of across a, a globe as it has? Well, you know, we had, um, I think, a false sense of security after what happened with SARS and MERS. I mean, although, you know, SARS killed 800 people, MERS killed 1,000 people, fewer than 10 people had SARS in this country and none died. Fewer than 10 people had MERS in this country and none died. So I think I 
like others, I think initially had this false sense of security that it can't happen here. But when it started to spread, um, then things changed. Yeah, did, and it seemed to be fairly infectious uh, right from the right from the get go. Um, should infectious disease folks have been more worried? What, what, was that the was that the was that the clue? You know, given the massive um, response from China uh, in terms of isolating and quarantining, which they had never done in a mass way with SARS and MERS, SARS and MERS, was that the clue to us that we should, we needed to start acting then? Yeah, and, and, and in fact, um, you know, the intelligence agencies testified in front of Congress actually in January that this was going to be a problem. I think we uh, made a number of mistakes that that allowed this to come in and didn't allow, a, and we chose not to respond in a way that we needed to respond, whereas other countries did. I mean, you know, Singapore got on top of this quickly. Uh, um, South Korea got on top of this quickly. Um other countries were able to do what we didn't do. Japan also got on top of it quickly, and ultimately yeah. well, China did. China also yeah. got on top of it. Well, what were the major things that we could have done um, differently? So, well, first of all, we should have paid attention to the intelligence community when they did say there was going to be a problem. Secondly, I think we should have really restricted travel very early on from countries where this virus was spreading. We didn't. We waited too long to do that. Once it was in here, then that didn't matter so much once there was community spread. But once we got that heads up, we should have developed testing um, where we had basically what South Korea did. I mean, South Korea had tested 150,000 people before we tested 500. We made the mistake of putting that all in the hands of the CDC. They had problems with the test. Their negative controls were positive. And so that got delayed. But we shouldn't have put it all in the hands of just that one agency. We should have broadly distributed that, including the companies. So we could have gotten more out there. So we could have known sort of where the, the devil was. Um, we didn't do that either. I think um, you know, we didn't get ready in terms of providing protective gear, you know, masks, et cetera. Um, we didn't get ready in terms of, of, of ventilators that might be needed. So we, we've just been chasing the tail of this animal since the beginning. Why? So it is the CDC. It is the CDC's job, and it always has been, I guess, to come up with a, a one test. Is that or why? Why is it that they were the only person, the only folks that that? I, I don't know. I mean, it's a great question. Why do we put it all in their hands? I mean, we knew that this was a problem. Here, we were testing. We tested 500 people. Yeah. We saw that there were people who were now spreading this virus in this country. Still, we were slow to get that testing out. Um, yeah. So because we didn't, I mean, it, would, it, would it have made sense with SARS and MERS to have kind of created a system where we could massively scale things or? Uh, well, we had that I system. Mean, uh, we had it in 2005 when, when H5N1, H, H5N1 uh, bird flu sort of raised its head. Tony Fauci, who has been now in six administrations, yeah. you know, put in place a pandemic preparedness plan where we could scale up manufacturing for the things that we needed. Um, mm. and, and, and co-op co manufacturers to make what we needed. And then the Trump administration uh, very early on just dissembled that pandemic preparedness plan because they didn't want to spend the money. I see, I see. So we just didn't have the ability to scale up uh, as, as we should have, perhaps. Um, what, why, why is this different? Why is this different than, you know, we frequently hear these comparisons to influenza. Why, why is it different than influenza? Well, in a number of ways. I, th I think I think influenza is worse. I mean, in influenza, although influenza, so we're comfortable with influenza, we're comfortable dying from influenza. It's like okay to die from influenza, it seems, these days. I mean, if think about it, here's influenza this year, at least according to the CDC statistics as of March 7, 21 to 30 million cases, U.S., um, 300,000 to 500,000 hospitalizations, U.S., 
and between 25 and 60,000 deaths from that virus U.S. So there's no way that this virus, I think, is going to get near to that number of deaths. We're roughly 800 deaths now. I don't think we're going to have 50,000 deaths from this virus in the United States. I, that's just not going to happen. I'd be surprised if we had 10,000 deaths from, from this virus. But so you're, you're far more likely to die from influenza because you're far more likely to get influenza. But, but uh, for whatever reason, this virus has captured our imagination um, because it does kill people and it's new and it's a bat coronavirus and, and it's just, you know, it's all, it's foreign as our president would say. So, Isn't it, is, is it the case also that, that it comes all at once? Um, that, you know, we don't, we just don't have scenes. We don't have flu scenes of ERs that go from, you know, seeing 10% of folks septic or 20% of folks septic uh, with, with some pneumonia slash, you know, influenza complication. And right now we have ERs. I mean, we know we saw what happened in Italy and then, and it's happening here now, of course, in New York, where, where, you know, you have these ERs, busy ERs, 60 bed ERs that have gone in two weeks from, you know, 10% of their patients having some pneumonia to literally 50% of the ER is, you know, a dedicated COVID unit and 50%, you know, and, and they filled up one unit, they filled up a second unit. Now they've, they've built a third unit and the third unit's filled up. Now they're looking at filling up a four unit, fourth unit, all, all with COVID. So that, that's partly why it feels so different, right? I mean, uh, what, 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 and is that, is that the case of any novel virus that has this predilection for the, uh, for the, for the respiratory tract, I guess, for the, for the pulmonary, uh, circuit yes yeah, so, you know so any any novel virus that comes and hits like this is going to is going to do this because there isn't a built-in amount of immunity to it and because you suddenly are inundated the health system's inundated you suddenly have you know hospitals that are filling up and, and getting the capacity right on top of what we handle with flu every year i mean i think there's right. also sort of a so-called fecal oral component to this the it does act like that to some extent um you know cruise ships nursing homes that it's it acts in some ways like norovirus and, and so i think you when people talk about washing hands talk about cleaning surfaces. I think that's part, I think Fomax is a, is a big part of this as well. I mean, think of, think of New York or Washington State as having this like thin layer of this virus sort of on surfaces and you have to be careful. So, and I think people got that very early on when they kept talking endlessly about washing your hands. I think that's, that's part of that. Yeah. So, so is the, is the precaution and this this leads into our question of like what the response should be and, and, and how exuberant the response should be. But but the fact that the flu, I mean, I guess if the 1918 flu pandemic happened now, there's some strange strain of the virus that that uh, um, uh, that, that that came that came on board. Would, we would have the same situation, I guess, in terms of the massive number of people that suddenly show up at ERs and kind of threaten to overwhelm our system. Well, we're better. I mean, in 1918, 1919, we didn't have a flu vaccine. Those didn't come around until the 1940s. We also didn't have the kind of in intensive care um, management that we have now. So, so the last flu pandemic was in 2009, 2010. It swept across the world. It caused about 200,000 people to die. It caused um, about 12,000 people to die U.S. That might not even happen with this. And that was a mild pandemic for which we had a vaccine in advance of its coming here. I mean, right now we have about 20,000 deaths in the world. That's a tenth of what was the 2009-2010 flu pandemic. We had 12,500 deaths here. I'd be surprised if we got to that number with this virus. So, and that was a mild pandemic for which we had a vaccine. Um, but there's some, we're just more comfortable with flu, I think. And I think mm. we're, it's, it sort of reminds me of measles to some extent. When we, um, 
when I was a little boy, I had measles, as did all my friends. I was a child of the 50s. We all had measles. Um, now, I mean, when I had measles, I would have never been admitted to the hospital. I mean, you know, I was sick as we all were sick with measles. Now, if there's a case of measles, kids get admitted to the hospital. And so I think when we're less comfortable with viruses, we're much more comfortable. Mm. We're much more well, likely to admit them and get scared. It, and what about what about the what about the what about the the fatality rate of this versus the flu? Meaning, it's it may be true that the flu um, afflicts a lot more people and therefore causes more deaths. But is it the case that this is more lethal than and not not just you know point one percent more lethal than the flu? Is it the case that at you know different ages, whatever age you look at, it's multiple times more lethal than the flu? So this virus certainly has a predilection for people who are elderly and have comorbidities like specifically hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity to a somewhat lesser extent chronic lung and heart heart disease and immune compromised patients. But um, look at the 2009-2010 flu pandemic. That of the 12,000 people that died, 20% were over 65. Most were healthy young people. That's really not true here. It's almost the opposite of that. You're right. If you're over 70 and have comorbidities, you have a 15% mortality rate, which is phenomenally high. But I'm going to predict that as time goes on, we're going to find the mortality rate of this virus was not all that high. Uh, You know, and the only way to know that is to do seroepidemiological studies, which was done with that 2009 pandemic. I mean, when that pandemic, when that first hit the United States, the mortality rate was estimated to be 4%. By the time they finally did seroepidemiological studies, it was less than 0.01%. That may be true here, too. We have 800 deaths. I think that's real. I think that's a number you can count on. The, the, the denominator, the number of cases, is it, because we're testing so haphazardly, there's really no way to know. So if you have 800 cases and you have a 1% mortality rate, then, that, then there's 800 deaths, and there's a 1% mortality rate, that's 80,000 cases. If it's a 0.1% mortality rate, that's 800,000 cases. If it's 0.01, that's sort of 8 million cases. That's still not a large percentage of the population when you're considering the population of the U.S. is 330 million people. Don't we, but don't we have the same issues with the flu? I mean, I mean, we don't test every single person with the flu, right? Isn't there also a, a similar amount of undercounting? Meaning the people that ended up getting tested with the flu, are, 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 they reach some threshold of, 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 of being symptomatic which is the same in this particular case, right? You reach some threshold to get symptomatic, and at least the way we're doing it right now um, in, in the U.S. So, I mean, are, are you saying that the case fatality rate for this is, is, is I understand the denominator is unknown, but the denominator is unknown for the, in some cases, for the, in some level for the flu as well. Are you saying that the CFR is not significantly different than the flu or... I think they're going to be the same. I, mean, I think when we did those right. seroepidemiological studies in 2009, 2010, and really looked at large numbers of people to see whether they really had ever seen this virus, before, we realized there was a lot of asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic infection we never identified. And then the, the case fatality rate was less than 0.01%, even though 12,000 people died, which tells you how many people uh, were infected in this country. You know, tens okay. of millions were infected in this country. Dr. Offit, how are these done? Because I'm curious, when you... Um when you test with serology in the population, I mean, how do, how do you, is there a selection bias, a potential selection bias? How do you get sort of a representative sample of the population? How, how does that work? Sure. I mean, there's always a problem with selection bias. But if you try and do, and usually there's seminal sites like located throughout the country that try and do then these studies, and then you, you project what you think likely is a story for the rest of the country. Obviously, you don't test the whole country. Right. Um, try and do a representative uh, sample, and the question is how representative is it? Oh, it's always the question. Right. And uh, the, the test, I mean, is there currently the test we, um, uh, this, this uh, COVID uh, test, um, how does it compare to the flu test? 
in terms of its, I mean, it seems that it's not very sensitive, but the, the flu test may not also be very sensitive. Do, do we even have an idea since we don't have a serology to, to compare it to, or, or you know, there, there's no real gold standard. What's your view on, on the diagnostic dilemmas? Once people are very sick, I think we can, we can it's easier to, to determine who's, uh, who's infected and who's not. But in, in the general population, what, what's your take on this and, and how that I mean, influences? So yeah, so I think whenever you do sort of a swab, uh, you know, of nasal mu mucus, um, there's always a problem, or the potential problem with sampling error, um, that you're going to miss something. The the but it, you know it's it's a PCR test. I mean, so you really are only detecting fragments of viral genome, and and that you know that can be positive for a long period of time. I mean, I, I worked with rotavirus for 25 years. You know, you'll be you'll shed infectious rotavirus for five or six days. You'll be PCR positive for six months. So in many ways, it, it does tell you sort of not necessarily what's actively going on, but what's been going on in the past. When, when, when people were talking on the cruise ship about not letting people off till they were PCR negative, I felt very badly for those people because I think that's probably well beyond when they were shedding infectious virus. I mean, the joke that we have in, in Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is, you know, when uh, kids come in in the winter month and have respiratory symptoms, you know, we get this so-called, you know, respiratory panel, which is that has a variety of viruses. The joke is, you know, $10,000 for the first child who comes in who's not rhinovirus. Positive. <laughs> so, so, so is, is there is there anything we can hang our hat on right now with this virus in terms of knowing when people are no longer infectious or that sort of thing? What what, what do we know? This you can you can there there are and it's not commercially available, but you know there are certainly research tools to say when someone is shedding infectious virus, I mean cultivatable virus. Um, that's we'll learn about these things in retrospect. I think PCR definitely overcalls infectiousness. Would be my guess. Okay. Okay. So if you're if you're PCR negative, you know, reasonable to go back to work because you're probably yes. not infectious at that point. Yes, okay. I agree. What? Uh, so South Korea. I mean, there, so there are some countries that have, we think, eliminated the disease if if we can believe everyone's numbers. Uh, South Korea and China are, are. Would you would you believe would you believe that the virus that they were able to eliminate the virus? Well, I mean, so, so Bruce Aylward from the United States is in China monitoring things. I mean, he has reported recently in places like Science and Nature that, that they have gotten on top of this. I, I just, and so I choose to believe that I was on a Beijing television show um, a week or so ago. And there was a variety of Chinese doctors. So maybe they're all lying, but, but I, I don't think so. I, I believe them when they say they're not. How do they, so how, did, how, how do you, I mean, we, we're not able to eliminate the flu. Uh, right? Uh, right. So how do how do you eliminate how do you eliminate this hyperinfectious coronavirus? Well, you know, it's I think I think personally you can eliminate the flu. I think even if we did what we did now, we wouldn't eliminate the flu because it's a respiratory. It's true that is purely a respiratory virus. This I do think has a fecal oral component, which may make it a little more easy to stop. But but. We did stop it. I mean, I, I, I don't think you can stop the flu. So for example, I'm going to make the following assumption. I think there are tens of millions of people in China who are still susceptible to this virus, yet aren't getting it. I think that's also true in South Korea. It's also true in Japan. I mean, um, yet we were able to stop it. That's very encouraging. And it makes me think that there's not just a respiratory, but also a fecal oral component. The other thing that would be interesting, I asked this question when I was on that TV show, what's happened to your incidence of, of influenza? in your country? Has, has doing this, which clearly has stopped the spread of COVID-19, has it also dramatically slowed the, influ the instance of influenza? And they kept talking about how influenza was their friend. 
So what, does that, what does that mean? I, I think it's like they're comfortable with dealing with it. That's I okay. This, this, this virus, which is, it's okay to die from flu. It's just not okay to die from this virus. Now, this, this uh, point that you make about the fecal oral transmission, uh, we don't hear much about it. Uh, when, at one point, do we, do we have a, a firm handle on this question? Is it really from epidemiological studies that, that we determine this? Uh, yes, the fecal I, oral I think, transmission? Or? Well, I mean, clearly the virus is shed in feces. I mean, that's been shown. And infectious virus is shed in feces. And you don't have to have diarrhea to shed infectious virus in feces. So I think that's all consistent with the fact that it's, it's true. And now there's, there's studies done looking at how long this virus can survive on surfaces on a variety of different surfaces. Certainly it can survive for up to 48 hours on surfaces. So, even, so I think all that's consistent with the fact that there may be a fecal arc. But it, the thing that, that sort of tipped me off to this was with the cruise ships and the, uh, the nursing homes. That's sort of a classic norovirus story. And We'll, we'll see. I think, I think a year or two from now, when the history of this, this outbreak is written, we'll have a much better idea of what the real story was. I can tell you that for sure the CDC is considering fecal oral as a, as a route of transmission. Okay. So, Dr. Avid, you know, I'm, I'm heartened to hear your estimate of what you think the most number of people that we would stand to lose with this virus. Now, of course, there are a bunch of models that are well beyond my scope of of, of, of analyzing and dissecting that that our, our list are giving massive numbers, right? I mean, you know, somebody has said there may be as many as two million people or you know a million people that 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 die from this. How have you looked at any of those models? I mean, you're you're a virologist. I mean, you, you you've come up with vaccines for this stuff. I imagine you have you have some uh, hard opinion on on these models that predict really you know hundreds of thousands if not a million deaths i mean that, that that's actually a model that the uk i think the uk is basing it on the uk switched from whatever they were doing <laughs> stratified lockdown or i don't know what they were doing herd immunity or something and they read this imperial college uh, report uh, not that you have to have read that report but but this particular report suggested that the us unmitigated um, you know us doing nothing we would lose a million a million people is that what are they talking about? I, I really don't get it. I mean, we have 800 deaths in this country. This virus has been circulating in the community for, you know, at least a month or longer. And we have 800 deaths in this, in this population. Now, it's true that everyone's susceptible. Not everyone who's susceptible is going to get sick any more than they, everyone who's susceptible in China or South Korea and Japan, et cetera, got sick. I mean, they're talking like, you know, weaponized smallpox was just sprayed over the entire country all at once. I mean, that's, the, those, that's those numbers. I don't, I don't get it. I, I just, I mean, even if this was Italy, Italy has whatever, 7,000 deaths or so in a population of 60 million. So that, that population is about a fifth of ours. So to multiply 7,000 times 5,000 times five and you're at 35,000, that's still less than the number of flu deaths we have in this country every year. So I, I don't know where they get that number. I really don't. It's, it's shocking to me, but it obviously scares the hell out of people. And maybe that's the point. The point is to make people so scared that they're afraid to leave their house so that we can really do this um, you know, lockdown or sheltering in place. And I do think that's important. Don't get me wrong. I do think we really, until we, we see that the curve is starting to come down, come down off this logarithmic phase, I do think we need to do this. The problem is, is I think people think that when they're, okay, now we're sheltering in place, we're locking down. Okay, why hasn't it stopped? The reason it hasn't stopped is because what we're seeing now is what happened three weeks ago, right? I mean, you, you have an incubation period of probably five, 10 days, then you get sick, then you get sicker, then you get sicker, then you go to the hospital, then you're on the incubator you're on, uh, intubated or you die, um, that takes weeks. So I think what we're doing now, we will see three weeks from now. And I do, I'm going to predict, and so I'll dare to be wrong on this program, that in three weeks or so, you will start to see us coming down off this, 
logarithmic phase. So do you do you think that um, do you think that what we've done, how has our response been, given that we were late, we didn't have testing, it's been circulating for a while? Uh, what do you what do you think? Well, here, let me let me ask ask a better question. It, it's clear that in the United States, there's been a very there's a regional massive difference, right? Even Philadelphia to New York City, there seems to be a big difference. Clearly, uh, you know, the, the virus was spreading in a massive way in the community in New York for, you know, for months uh, in a way that it has not been spreading in Philadelphia yet. Now, that may happen in Philadelphia. I hope not. But, you know, and m m many other parts of the country that are even, you know, non-metro areas, uh, are, there's, there's clearly a big difference. Um, is that, is that, do you, do you think that the rest of the country must follow the, the same thing that will happen in New York? No. I think, I think regions are different, districts are different. I think that, that what happened in Washington State, I think there was a, 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 a entrance presumably from China or from the, the, you know, across the Pacific Ocean that then seeded that area. And then you get things like nursing home outbreaks where just a lot of virus was being put out there. And, and the same thing in New York, whether it was the, you know, travel from Europe, whatever, New York, and that New York and Washington are hubs is not surprising. Do I think that that's then going to spread in the same way as we move into the rest of the country? I don't. I think in part because we now know that, that you know, we need to do hand washing, we need to do social isolation. I think that, that, that it's not just respiratory. I do think the rest of the fecal oral component is part of this too. And then I think the virus will have had its day. I, I do think that I hope I'm right about this. I mean, we know the human coronaviruses, the four strains of human coronaviruses that we've known ever since, about ever since, since the 60s. We know that that's a winter spring virus. And we know that respiratory root is part of spread. And the thinking is, is that as you get higher temperature and higher humidity, that those droplets, that, that those small droplets start to accrete more water and therefore drop more quickly. That's the thinking. Greece is currently not suffering this disease much as distinct from neighbors to their north. So if it's true that climate matters, if it's true that seasons matter, then I, I'm optimistic that we'll start to see this fading. I mean, you know, we had a measles epidemic, for example, um, in 1991 in Philadelphia, where we had one, this is, you know, 1991, you're 30 years into the availability of a measles vaccine, but there were two, two uh, fundamentalist churches that chose not to vaccinate their children. Um, they had big, you know, big uh, childcare centers and stuff and big schools. So we had, we, in, that, in that city, in our city, in a three-month period in 1991, we had 1,400 cases of measles and nine deaths from measles. I mean, one city, one season. And as the, the, you know, we were running around like chickens with our heads cut off. We were vaccinating down to six months of age. We were setting up clinics. You know, we were all really upset about this. And Bob Levinson, who was the head of the, uh, the Department of Health in Philadelphia at the time, said, when the weather gets warmer, it's going to stop. And that's exactly what happened. It, come early May, actually, it just stopped. Um, not sure why these things are true, but that was certainly true for me. So maybe it's the same reason as what may go on here. Well, you know, you don't know because you know about human coronaviruses. This is not a human coronavirus. It's a bat coronavirus. And so you don't, it's not, hasn't been in the population very long. So you don't really know what the story is. Flu is, although flu is a bird virus, that virus has been much better adapted to the human population. So they're different well, so what do you, what, and what do you think of our what do you think of our response so far? Um, you know, should we have should we have done something in terms of our mitigation? Uh, you know, what what do you think uh, we're doing? Well, the administration denied this initially. It's not a big deal. We're getting on top of it. It's going to go away soon. I mean, because you know they just 
denied it. They hoped that if they put their hands over their eyes, it would all go away. It didn't work that way. I honestly think the administration didn't start to pay attention to this until the market went down. When the market started to crash, and then they realized this was a big deal and something needed to be done. And then they went almost in the other direction. Yet no more crowds greater than 10, you know, which was not the CDC's directive, which was 50. But so they, they sort of got much more interested in sheltering in place, et cetera. Um, I think, I think, what you need that we don't have is a federal policy. I mean, you need to know what the plan is. Right now, they just sort of turn it over to the states and ask the governors to figure it out on their own. So we're kind of lurching in the dark. I mean, there, there's, there's, two, there's two pandemics, if you will, that are occurring now. One is the one that's caused by the virus that's going to cause people to be, suffer and be hospitalized and die. And the other is, is, is the, the pandemic of joblessness that is about to hit. I mean, if, if the 20% a joblessness correction or, or a prediction is correct, that's 35 million Americans that are going to lose their jobs. And with joblessness comes homelessness, and with homelessness comes crime and violence and domestic abuse and child abuse and, and depression and suicide and all of the fallout of major economic downturns, especially among the poor. I think that's really where you're going to see it. And, and dealing with, how do you deal with that? So right now you're trying to bounce these two things. There's no clean solution. There's no perfect solution. But I do think that as we start to come down off this curve, we need to have criteria for when we know hospitals aren't being overwhelmed. We, we, now we know, we know we've gotten on top of this. When we know that, that, um, you know, that, uh, that we can go back to school, that we can go back to, to work at some level, because that's going to have to happen. I, I was just on a you know, conference call with, uh, the board of trustees at uh, you know the Franklin Institute, and they, they they really care about their workers. But you know these workers are going to get laid off. That that's the way this plays out. So, do you think that will be driven by testing and testing negative, or is that is that kind of the solution uh, moving forward? No, I, I think it's it's gonna it's gonna be. The, the, the hospitals that really give us the most information, because that's the biggest fear, that you overwhelm your healthcare system, which will not only affect those who have this virus, but also those who need hospitals. So I think that's what we need. We need sort of a coordinated understanding of, of in which situations, districts, regions, states, hospitals are or not being overwhelmed, so people can now start to crawl out of their homes and go back to work again. That has to happen. I mean, you know, you watch these gut-wrenching decisions about people laying off, off uh, their workers who yeah. have been so dedicated to them. It's just hard to watch, but it is. And I can tell you the true $2 trillion package will not be the, the thing that solves all this. Because first of all, people aren't going to spend money if they're afraid to walk out of their house and they're not going to go to a movie theater if the theater is closed. So we need to figure out a way to yeah. get back in the game here. So it, it really... It really is. It's really is remarkable to watch. I've I run a I run a private practice and uh, and uh, I mean I'm on the top floor of, of a of a of a ten ten story uh, building, and the entire building shut down just on Sunday, uh, or we got an email Friday or Saturday. So I'm the only one open at the moment for urgent urgent visits, and you know we're doing telemedicine or whatnot. Um, and you know as I was walking the door on Monday. The, the the door the woman at the door stopped me she's she's kind of the not the guard but she's the person who lets people in and you know screens people or you know some brief screening and a sign in sheet or something like that and i thought she was going to i thought she was going to stop me and tell me to stay away from her because i was in scrubs but she stopped me to thank me and said thank you so much for staying open because because i was laid off as of friday and then then i got another email saying oh you know dr coke is still open so we still need somebody there but it's so amazing to me that, that it happens that quickly, that quickly the building shuts. And suddenly everyone is laid off. The cleaning crew that came to my office, they've laid off, they live, they've laid off 90% of their staff. The, 
the, the, the folks that do maintenance in the building, um, all but one person is laid off after this week. It's amazing. And, and, and with that goes health insurance. You know, we have this idiotic thing where we tie health insurance to employment. And so um, it's just the, the you can kind of see the train wreck. I mean, you see two train wrecks happening exactly like you said. You see the train wreck happening, at least right now, and to our poor colleagues in New York who are just getting inundated and flooded with patients and, uh, you know, whatnot. And then you have this other this other train wreck happening, you know, at the same time. And I am shocked and surprised at how quickly that's happening. And I think a lot of the – and so you're exactly right. I mean, I think that's going to be – the cost of that isn't just in dollars, isn't just in the stock market. The cost of that, there's real health implications to putting 20, 30 percent of the of the uh, uh, country out of uh, out of work. Okay. Sorry, Michelle. Yeah, no. So, so Dr. Offit, I'm very pleased to hear your point of view. Uh, I mean, I think Anish and I tend to share it, but it's more by instinct, whereas you're an expert in the field. And it, but what's surprising is that it seems that. Um, among academics and what you're in the minority it seems to be that you know what what we hear from from people who are in epidemiology and i'm not sure maybe it's a false impression but it seems that your 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 uh, more balanced response seems to be a minority view uh and and how do you explain that or uh, i'll give you an example um dr fauci yesterday or maybe the day before was asked on a uh, you know a, a press conference whether he thought his job was to only think about defeating the virus versus have a more sort of global view. And he said, no, my job is to just defeat the virus and I'll leave it to the president to make the decision about what to do sort of globally. And what are your thoughts about why the, the you know, you, you're in the minority and, and why that view is not more prevalent? Because public health is public health in general, right? I mean, it should be taking into account just, just about everything. Well, I, I do think that that, that um, narrative is changing. I mean, David Katz had an op-ed piece in the New York Times uh, a couple of days ago saying just exa exactly that. I mean, is the, is the cure worse than the disease? And you're starting to hear at least that other side of it, that, you know, this massive unemployment that we're about to have happen, um, that's not going to be alleviated by a couple of checks, you know, from the government, um, is, is a big public health issue. It's, people are talking about that. Now, when people finally are talking about establishing criteria for what it means to say that we can now worry, you know, consider going back to work and in what settings and how to do that. So I, I do think that conversation is definitely happening. So although I think I was a minority speaker initially, I think that's, that's happening. Okay, well, let's hope so. Uh, but then a related question is, we mentioned the, these models that project, you know, the you know, millions of, 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 of death. And, and you see that, again, coming from academia and, um, you know, at UCSF, apparently a couple of weeks ago, there was a conference that, that um, sort of started circulating these uh, prognoses, these really grim uh, prognoses. Is this something new that, we, you know, to rely on these mathematical models? Is this something that's, that's new or has it always been the case that people have, you know, epidemiologists have tried to, to predict um, whenever there's a new virus on, on board, you know, to, to, to predict what's going to happen? Yeah, well, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm a virologist, but I, I right. think, you're. I think that there's nothing new about that. I think what, what the, probably the, the, uh, what would be interesting is to see the people who really stand to lose, you know, like banks, you know, just, they, they spend, they're spending millions of dollars trying to model all this. You know, I, I hope they share that information with the government because I, I tend to trust people who have the most money to lose usually come up with the best models. So we'll see. All right. The, um, do, you, do you get a sense... Um, 
in, in your in, in your community in the virology community do most folks are most folks thinking like like you're thinking i mean again your your comments are are, are greatly colored or are greatly informed i should say by um you know the history i mean you, you obviously have a you know you have a rolodex in your in your mind of the h1n1 flu what it was and the flu the flu season and how many people die with that the rotavirus how many people die with that etc so you know you're informed by history um whereas you know pure technocrats if you will are coming to this you know they basically have models that make some simple assumptions in terms of well this is the case fatality rate uh, this is this is the age this is the r naught and this is how many people will get it and therefore and that's you can see how they come up with these numbers is the virology community uh, you know, more in line with what, what it is, what your take is, which is a little more of a balanced take in terms of? Um, not near as I can tell. The, 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 here's what surprised me in, in this. I think yeah. viruses are scary usually for three reasons. One, because they, they affect children. So polio virus, it was, was a feared scourge. My mother never let us go to any public swimming pool when I was young in the 50s because she was afraid I was going to get polio. Um, so that's number one reason people are scared. The second is that, you know, you're, you're very likely to die. So rabies, if you get rabies and you develop symptoms, you're dead. That's a hundred, virtually a hundred percent fatality rate. The third reason is that there's something unique about the symptomatology that's particularly grim. Uh, you know, smallpox, for example, is disfiguring. It, it leaves people for the two out of three that actually survive that infection. You know, it often leaves people blind, leaves, you know, permanent scarring. This is none of those. I mean, this is just, is, is a respiratory virus. It acts in many ways like a respiratory virus. It probably has a more, it may well have a mortality rate that's greater than flu. We'll see. But I'm not sure. And maybe you can answer this better than me. Is it's not, is it the 24 hour news cycle? Is it, is it, what is it that makes this particularly serious? Because I, I can tell you, I would be shocked if this, if this virus does what flu did in 2009, 2010 during that pandemic. And that was a pandemic we had a vaccine for. And also that was a pandemic that primarily killed healthy young people as a thing from this, which kills people like my age. I mean, I'm the one who should be worrying on, on this call. Well, th well, the question is to you. I'm asking you what your virologist friends are saying. Why, why are they saying, why, are they, why do they find you out of step? Or w what is concerning them so much? So that you're saying they're succumbing to the, uh, to the, to the lay press? Uh, to the to the panic that that uh, that seems to be no, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, I talked to, to yeah. a woman today who who also was saying, you know, first of all, our hospital could not be at lower capacity right now, and we're shutting down wards. You know, it's just it's nobody's coming to the hospital. Um, right. The hospital next to us, the hospital, University of Pennsylvania, also doesn't yeah. seem to be suffering terribly. But you know, yeah. New York is, and I think what yeah. happens is the media plays that up. So it's like what happened as Andrew Cuomo says, "What are you, we are your future." Where you know what's happening here right. is going to happen, and this really scares the hell out of people. And I think he's wrong. Actually, we'll see how it plays out. I just, you know, we have 800 deaths. Maybe we'll get a few thousand deaths when this is all said and done. I just would be shocked if we went to 12,000, which is, was a mild flu pandemic 10 years ago. Right, right. I think, I mean, the, the one, the one thing that I think we're not used to seeing. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm not as, um, I'm not as old as Michelle is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the one thing, the one thing that, the one thing that I haven't seen in my, in, in my whatever 10, 15, 20 years at doing medicine at this point is. Um, is this kind of bolus of folks arriving at hospitals that that rapidly over that that seem to rapidly push you to the limits? Um, that, that's something we're just not used to seeing. I mean, we're used to surges. Um, you know, we're used to bad flu seasons and things are bad. And you know, we're trying to we, we're putting people in the PACU. But I've never seen I've never seen three three separate new units built and all of them get filled up with 
patients being intubated. I think it's the, it's the, um, it's that, it's that kind of. But but that's only in in pockets, right? I mean, that's only in hot spots. Oh yeah, it's in pockets. Yeah, right, right. right. But but the problem was because we weren't testing, right? I mean, I you know when I, when I when I kind of shut things down, you know, there were a bunch of cases reported in Montgomery County. I have I have, you know, a bunch of kids in the school district. My oldest kid. Um, you know, is, has had a liver transplant is on immunosuppression. And so when I saw a bunch of cases show up in Montgomery County, I got really nervous that I was like, oh my God, we may have thousands of cases in the community and we just don't know it because we're not testing. I didn't, so I, I wasn't sure if we were New York, what, what, what ended up being New York or not. And now it turns out in the last 10, 14 days, clearly it seems that the, for multiple reasons, I'm not, I, I do primary, I have a primary care doc who works with me and we get a lot, we field calls all the time for fevers and stuff. And I haven't seen an uptick in that. I have a drive through a testing center that's right next to me. Um, and that's basically every time I walk by, it's not that busy. So it clearly seems that the prevalence of disease in our area in Philadelphia is much, much different than what's going on in, in, in New York city. But two weeks ago, you know, when Italy hit and you start to see cases being reported around the community, you just don't know whether you're the tip of the iceberg, whether you're the tip of the iceberg but, or, you know, or Italy, not. Italy's so. also, I mean, everybody keeps pointing to Italy. Italy yeah. First of all, 25% roughly of their population is over 65 as compared to yeah, 16% yeah. here. So they are an older population. Two, if you, it tends to be more northern Italy than southern Italy, yeah. more the area around Milan yeah. and Rome, which is a rural area. I think there wasn't the intensive care, health care available in yeah. that area as compared to here. I think there yeah. were people that died in that country that wouldn't have died here. So I'm not sure that when we point to Italy and deaths in Italy, that that's necessarily uh, uh, right, right. significant so, of what would happen here. Yeah, though New York is clearly, I mean, they've got a, a bajillion hospitals, right? And uh, they have a lot of capacity. And, and, and I mean, again, it, it, it's somewhat, it, it, you know, you somewhat have the number of hospitals that you have, certainly in the United States, somewhat relates to the, 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 the population that you have. And we certainly would, I think we have more capacity, especially in our metro areas than most other parts of the world, even though that may be hard to figure out on, 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 on anyway, it may be hard to, that may be hard to figure out. Um, in some type of uh, peer-reviewed nature, but I think we have a lot more capacity in other places to do. But despite that, it seems that the exponential growth of the virus, once you have a critical mass, can overwhelm the hospital resources that you have built to to deal with what you have. So, I mean, I don't think I don't think I mean in talking to the folks on the ground in in in, in New York City, I mean I, I mean I think I think they're being they're going to be pushed to the limit. And I'm pretty sure that they're going to have to end up using, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers is building, uh, you know, 2,000 extra beds in the Javits Center. Each hospital is doubling or doubling their capacity to try to meet the surge. That's just that's just something that, you know, has never hasn't happened in, in certainly an hour in our in, in what we know or what we understand. So what, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see yeah. in New York a side-by-side yeah. comparison as we went from one week to the next to the next yeah. of the number of people in New York who died of this virus and the number of people in New York who died of influenza. Just side-by-side, side, I'd like to see that. I mean, because right now, maybe, what is it, 170 or so people have died in New York City or New York uh, from maybe 200 people. It's only 800 total deaths in the U.S. So maybe a couple hundred deaths. I, mean, I know they're the epicenter. So, something like that in that range. I'd just like to see the number of deaths from flu. I'd like to see that lined up next to the number of people in the ICUs from flu, number of people who suffer from flu. I'd just like to see that, those numbers in comparison just to put this in some context. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I, think, I think you're going to find that number to be, yeah, I think you're going to find that number to be fairly impressive. I think there are 900 and, right, 941 deaths in the U.S. Uh, 285 of them are in New York, and uh, they're, they're dealing with, I think, they're dealing with 
4,500 to, you know, 4,500, 6,000 new cases a day of the disease. So, right. I mean, it seems to me that there, there are local, local factors that maybe yeah. completely, you know, not, we don't have a good handle on, but, yeah. you know, why is it New York? Why is it, you know, Northern Italy? Um, you know, we, uh, we, we've been talking about these um, super spreaders uh, in, in North Korea and whatnot. Uh, are these common with the, I mean, is there such a thing as a super spreader of the flu or is it particular to, to this virus? There was certainly a super spreader associated with SARS. I mean, that was a, the Toronto okay. experience. So, yeah, right. yeah, I mean, I think that it's possible, certainly with coronavirus, to have a super spreader, even with relatively mild symptoms. Right. So would that sort of explain local differences or might could explain local differences? Sure. That can and again, again right. fomites, I think, are a big part of this. Too. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, it's very, um, you know, really fascinating. Uh, um, the... the um, uh, you, you know, this side-by-side -side comparison but, and, and this panic, I mean, we're all glued now to the worldometer, right? Every day, every morning, you, I mean, twice, three times a day, you look at the statistics and, and they see the numbers and each time they, they go up. We have no experience of that with the flu. And, and yeah. as you said, I mean, if we, if we did that every season with the flu and, and keep tracking, you know, we'd see the exact curve, right? And it goes up yeah. and it'll probably come down. Um, do you make anything of um, the fact that you know, China went up and down, South Korea went up and down, reasonably similar sort of time frame, fairly radically different approaches. Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything, but is there something to be said about, you know, that essentially these things, you know, have a natural history. And I mean, it's too early to tell, we don't have serology and so forth, but I mean, if Iran starts to come down, I mean, I, I saw their, their death, their, their numbers are still a little bit scattered, but, but if, if, if Iran starts to come down, then, you know, you think, well, maybe there's just, you know, there, there's a, just a natural history and, and these things yeah. eventually go away. Yeah, no, I, th I think um, a year or two from now, we'll know that. We'll know the history of this. Um, right. And we'll know who the heroes were and we'll know who the villains were. <laughs> we just don't quite know who those people are yet. Yeah. No, I think things will certainly get a lot clearer uh, as time goes on. Because you're right, we, we, we don't do this. We don't track anything else like the way, the way we're tracking. We're tracking this. So. Right. All right. But uh, extremely important to, uh, to um, you, know, you know, keep the whole picture in mind and not, not just focus yeah. on, on, no, on and, these and the good uh, news is, statistics. And the good news is that Dr. Fauci and, and, and I imagine uh, Mr. Trump is taking his cue from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx, uh, you know, in terms of looking at this not as a nas as a as a as a lid that you leave on the nation for some endless period of time um but you know regionally to kind of look at and based on data uh, this is what Fa dr Fauci was saying yesterday in the press conference based on data try to look and see if the transmission is low if the prevalence is low then then allow people to start kind of creeping out of their homes you're you're, you're saying of course the other canary in the coal mine, if you will, is also the hospitals. And it's clear that the hospitals are not getting overwhelmed. Another, obviously, maybe more important, you know, phenotypic sign that, hey, this is this is this is OK. And now we can go to restaurants again. Oh, that, oh that's that's a good question. You know, Dr. Burks was asked this and her, her question, her, her answer was not very reassuring. Um, will, will we ever be able what, to. What did she say? Well, the question she was asked was. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing. The question she was asked was, will we be able to, uh, will things go back to normal? Will we be able to go to a football game again? And, and her, her question, her answer wasn't, wasn't very reassuring. Her answer was, well, you know, um, I hope so. 
<laughs> I mean, eventually this will stop. I mean, it has to stop There's, there, it, it, because herd immunity, I mean, you'd like to induce herd immunity with a vaccine. We don't have a vaccine. So we're inducing herd immunity to some extent with, with circulation of, of wild type virus. I mean, um, which is why you could argue we probably maybe could have, should have never had to close schools. I mean, that was never a CDC directive. I mean, people just did that on their own. And um, Singapore certainly stopped transmission without ever closing schools. So it's possible. Um, but I, I mean, this will, this will end. It will. I, it has, it will end. And there will be an NFL season and the Eagles are much better positioned this year. To well, so I'm optimistic. Um, on that note, uh, can, can you um, uh, give us um, your perspective on vaccine development? Because I've heard you speak to that. And, and I think what you, what you say is important for people to, to hear about. Yeah, so I mean, so the, here's the good news about a vaccine. You, you know from, from human challenge studies actually decades ago with coronaviruses that there's so-called homotypic immunity, meaning that if you are infected with one strain of, of, uh, of coronavirus, human coronavirus, and then you're challenged with that strain a year or more later, that you're protected. That's good. If natural infection can protect against disease associated with reinfection, then you can make a vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's the first good sign. The second thing is you have a pretty good idea that the, the, what you need to do is make an antibody response to the spike glycoprotein, because that's the, the protein that attaches to cells. If you can prevent cell attachment, you're very likely to be able to prevent infection. It's true for hepatitis B, it's true for human papillomavirus, it's that surface protein. So that's good. You also have things in place like mRNA technology, messenger RNA technology or DNA technology, or just recombinant DNA technology that lets you, lets you make a purified protein to do that. And you can adjuvant that protein to do that. So all that's good. Um, you know, you would like to think that we will do animal model testing that will go through, you know, thousands of people with phase one and phase two testing before we ever release that vaccine. And, and you know, maybe I'm a bad sport because it took us 26 years to make a rotavirus vaccine. But, you know, just the notion that we could make a vaccine in 12 to 18 months to me seems outrageous. <laughs> but, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I do think that I would offer this one warning, though. Make sure this vaccine is safe before you put it out there. Make sure there's no such thing as immune enhancement, for example, that you're actually, when you're exposed to wild type virus, do worse because most of the people who are going to get this vaccine, we're not going to die from the virus. So, mm -hmm. so you know, they're going to be healthy young people. Make sure that's true. I think um, we owe it to that. And when people are panicked and they're panicked, they're willing to sort of cut corners with not just with vaccines, but with, with uh, antivirals or drugs like, you know, hydroxychloroquine or something. So, so be careful is all I'm saying. Did, did, is, is it the science of vaccine development that, that took 26 years or, or was it regulatory barriers or what was? Well, we did extensive animal model testing, do proof of concept studies, meaning, you know, we had an animal model where the, we could make the animal sick with rotavirus. And so then you did, you, you know, you, it's the, the virus is a little more complicated than this one. You know, there are two surface proteins that evoke neutralizing antibodies. Did you need both? Did you just need one? So you had to sort of do that. And, you know, say segmented genome so you can make these reassortant viruses, which was an approach people used. And, um, and then when we had done that, then we did, you know, went to phase one, phase two, but the phase three trial, the single phase three clinical trial was a prospective placebo controlled 70,000 person, 11 country, four year, $350 million wow. trial to prove that vaccine was safe and effective before you then put it into babies, which you have to do. I mean, you know, if you're going to give these vaccines to healthy people, you have to hold them to a high standard of safety. It's different with treatment. I think people are willing to accept side effects with treatment far more than because you're, because you're already sick. How have there been any uh, vaccines that have had horrendous, horrendously bad outcomes because 
Yes, it's okay. from the beginning. I mean, the yeah. RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus vaccine in the 1960s was a whole killed virus. That ended up sort of disrupting the fusion protein of that virus. So that when then children were naturally infected with RSV, they did worse. That, that mistake was repeated for the measles vaccine in 1963. Again, a whole killed virus that disrupted the fusion protein that then when you were infected with natural measles, you actually were more likely to get pneumonia. Dengue is another example. There's the dengue vaccine, Dengvaxia by Sanofi. Um, if you got that vaccine and you'd never been uh, um, infected with dengue before, and then you were exposed to wild type virus, you were more likely to, to be seriously ill with dengue hemorrhagic shock syndrome than if you never got that vaccine because of something called antibody uh, facilitated enhancement. So yeah, there's, you know, be humble. There's a lot of surprises out there. Things that you haven't thought about. The history of breakthroughs, medical breakthroughs in this world is built on tragedies. Uh, or I think there was Michael, Histo Michael Harris, a historian, said uh, the history of drug regulation is built on tombstones. And that's true. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, so then, then is, an, is an antiviral therapy something that would be more, more promising in terms of time frame, in terms of getting something that, that Sure. Works? Well, you, you have them. I mean, you have remdesivir, which is a protease inhibitor. Yeah. This is a virus that has a protease. You have uh, flavipiravir, which is an RNA-dependent yeah. RNA polymerase inhibitor. This is an RNA virus. So I think you know, there's reasons biologically to think those would work. The hydroxychloroquine uh, azithromycin story doesn't make as much sense to me, and I certainly hope people test it, because I know doctors are just giving it now, thinking this is going to be a wonder drug. But you know, when people are sick, you think you can't hurt them. You can hurt people who are sick. I mean, people are sick, one of three things can happen. They can do better, they can do worse, they can stay the same. Don't take people who are going to do better and stay the same and make them worse, which you can do. Is your is your is your is a specific issue with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin? Is it just implausible to you as a virologist that that it it could uh, 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 could work? Uh, I mean, some the, the French paper said the viral. I know. Look, lots of caveats, bad paper, etc. Terrible not, paper. Not, not, not double blind. Not RCT published. Is there any is there any in vitro evidence to suggest that, or you you think it's just implausible based on what you know about HCQ and azithro and how it impacts you know viral shedding? Or well, I think the thinking uh -huh. is that, is that the hydroxychloroquine will change the sort of pH of cells, specifically macrophages, and that will make for a more hostile environment for viruses to grow. But I, I just um, would be surprised if this were it, uh, th that paper should never have been published. It was a terrible sure. paper, and it just sure, I just sure. think it's misleading. What about the what about the in vitro? Is there any in, good in vitro evidence of that 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 works? So that that, that is that, that, I, I, I don't know those data. That you don't know. Okay, all right. The 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 antivirals that we're talking about, remdesivir, et cetera. Do you is this the kind of thing that you know similar to HIV, for instance, right? Uh, well, HIV is probably not a good example because that was a very tangled web in terms of how we came up with the solution. But but do you, do you think that there's going to be a sing, a single agent, and if it if it if it does work, it should be obvious very quickly meaning meaning you know there are trials that you need to, vaccine trials because you're giving healthy people you need to you need to do 70,000 follow them for four years I and mean, this is what we do in cardiology all the time with statin trials right but in this particular case understand knowing the mechanism is this something that we should see very quickly with 30 people so uh, do i think that remdesivir or five appear will work yes or, I, th I think i think they'll work and okay. i think we'll know fairly quickly the the, the see the vaccine story is is I don't know how exactly you do an efficacy trial. It's easy for us to do efficacy trials on rotavirus because everyone gets infected with rotavirus. I mean, here, even if the, the mortality rate is 0.1%, you're still talking about a very small percentage of the population in the U.S. that's infected with this virus. So I, I think you're probably going to just have to settle for immunogenicity studies, which is what we do with meningococcus, where, you know, 
300 people a year get serogroupine meningococcal disease, yet you get a licensed product without doing an efficacy trial. See, Ebola was different. I mean, Ebola, you know, that was a major outbreak in West Africa. And so as they rolled out that vaccine, you know, you could see who got it and who didn't get it. And you could tell whether it was effective. That's not that kind of uh, level of infection here, at least not now. Okay. But certainly, uh, I, I doubt that uh, the vaccine was part of the models that uh, have, uh, dire, I mean, you know, the medications, the antivirals, uh, you know, are not included in the very dire models that are being uh, rolled out. Because clearly these things really can, can change the course of, uh, of the epidemic uh, quite quickly. I don't know who's, but are these are the same people that produced the movie like 27, 28 <laughs> weeks later. I mean, it's grim. Uh, uh, it is. Don't but drop it. Thank you, thank you so much uh, for for giving us an hour of your time. Really, uh, thank you. Really, really great. I, I learned I learned a, learned a ton. I'm sure the audience uh, will. That was fun. Thanks very much. Take care, guys. All right, stay stay safe. Well, that's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed uh, this episode of the Akad and Coca Report. As a reminder, we you will find links on the show notes at akadandcoca.com/slash episode 112. And if you enjoy the show, please support us either by uh, spreading the word, by word of mouth on social media, by sharing the episode, by leaving a comment, by leaving a rating, or by making a small but very important contribution to akadandcoca.com slash support. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkad and Coca.com.